welcome to the stage, Masters of Social Gastronomy. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome, Masters of Social Gastronomy. It is so good to see you. Uh, this here is Jonathan Soma, co-founder of the Brooklyn Brewery. Oh, yeah, applaud. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, and I am Sarah Lohman. I do things. I wrote a book. There it is. There Buy it is. It. Uh, and we are here to bring you the secret history of bodegas. It's not really that secret. It's not that it's secret. It's just when you write an article or when you have a show, you have to put the secret history in front of, and then everyone's like, ooh. Ooh. So good. So good. So this is how this is going to work tonight. Uh, we do three talks with little breaks in between. I'm going to talk first, and I am going to talk about the history of the New York City bodega, New York institution, where it came from, and also where it's going. Then we have a little break, so you can get yourself some drinkies. And then in the middle, we have a section called story time. And this, this story time, I'm so excited. I almost said this month, but we don't do this monthly. We do this randomly. Um, this time story time is all about bodega cats. People weren't excited about that. Uh, that was pretty was. weak. Also, it's not all about bodega cats, <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah, and well, you're and talking other about stuff. some other random yeah. stuff in yours. And then what are you talking about at the end? <sighs> at the end, deli meat. Delis, <laughs> right? That's fine. That's what happens at bodegas, maybe some of them. It's fine. I worked at Subway. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> You, that is the one thing that you work into almost every talk. That you work I know, at I'm so proud. This time I actually like have second. slides that say Subway, and like, it's great. I should have worn a sandwich artist shirt. Um, can I tell you some of the things that I've been up to since I saw you last? Yeah, do yeah. you want to stand near the computer or use this thing? I can thing? use that if you take my beer. Yeah. Thanks. It's tasty. It's the shandy. Um, so here's what's going on in my life. I was invited to visit the Ajinomoto factory in Des Moines, Iowa. Actually, I take that back. It's in Eddyville, Iowa, which is 40 minutes outside of Des Moines. And this factory makes most of the monosodium glutamate that is used in America. <laughs> there it is. It was a special invitation because in the book that I wrote, Eight Flavors, uh, one of the chapters is about MSG, which I couldn't get a hold of Ajinomoto when I was writing the book because I always get so much bad press. But now it's kind of worked out because now they like, like me because I wrote, a ni wrote nice things about MSG that it's not bad for you. Um, so this was their 25th anniversary of the opening of this plant, and the president of Adajimoto was there from Japan. And I took so I signed a bunch of books and took so many photos with Japanese businessmen like this. That's great. It was super great and so bizarre. But like we got a plant tour as well, but there wasn't a lot to see. Like you never actually got to see MSG at any one point. That's a thing. It's a separator or a fermenter. Um, I think that's, oh, but they had um, a, like a board on the history of MSG. And this is about these studies that were done in the 70s where they injected MSG into mice. But I just think that's the most adorable dead obese mouse <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. I'm like, that is so sweet and hilarious that they put that at their 25th anniversary. Anyway, it's not true. You don't you don't eat MSG by injecting it, so it's it's fine. Just don't do that. But You'll if you are a baby mouse you're gonna that's looking to have children and be yes, fit. That mouse is fat, dead, and infertile, <laughs> sterile. <laughs> Correct. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to share was this weekend. So I teach a lot of open fire cooking classes in Park Slope. Um, through the Brooklyn Brainery, and I did my first advanced session ever. Like, I've been teaching for four or five years, and so I had nine students that were in the advanced course because I got this big new, like, hearth and um, bread oven. So we did, um, like, a roast chicken on a string. You can see it up there. It was the best chicken I've ever had in my life. Do you just take a chicken and put it yeah. on a string and put yeah, it on the fire? Yeah, and you put it about two feet above the fire, and okay. it hung there for two and a half hours. And after two and a half hours, it was like, you know when it's so tender and well done that it just starts to, you pull on a leg and it just disintegrates in your hand? But then the skin was like crispy. It was so good. So Sounds that was super wonderful. exciting. We made, a pi we made pizzas in the bread oven, too. It got a little ashy on the one side. Um, they made pies. Um, they made a creme brulee, which is super fun. Yeah, you heat up this flat tool in the fire, and then you use it to do the charred part. It's super impressive. Don't hit the next slide yet. Is that yours? Oh yeah. yeah. So what's going on in what's going on in your life, Soma? I had a baby. <laughs> this this baby. <laughs> um, 
so someone like showed up at my house and they're like, I got this mom cat and a baby cat. It's one day old. Uh, take care of it. And I was like, sure, why not? Uh, who here has been to MSG before? By show of okay. applause? Okay. Yeah. Who's, who's first time here? Welcome. Okay, so I'm always like, here's a cat that's in my house that I'm trying <laughs> to get rid of. This one can't be gotten rid of yet. Uh, that was him, I think, the first day or second day where he was one or two days he old. He's just a little slug. Um, that's him a few days later, maybe like a week because his eyes were open. Because, uh, yeah, eyes don't open for a while. He's not happy all the time. <laughs> uh, and now he's about this big. So he's almost at like real kitten phase. He's got blue eyes. Yeah, it's until so they pretty. turn like uh, two months old, they have blue eyes. Once Ooh. their eyes change then you can't make them love people anymore. <laughs> not, not that I don't try and then give them to people saying they're good cats, but that's fine. Do, do, do. All right, so. Get off the stage. You can just go right there. It's fine. Please welcome to the stage our first presenter of the night, Sarah Lohman of A Book and Four Pounds Flower. Thank you. Welcome Thank her you to so the much. Stage. See you later, buddy. All right. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about bodegas. Um, <sighs> bodegas. I moved to New York a little over 12 years ago, and I still remember the cab ride from LaGuardia to where I was staying and noticing, like, every street corner had a little store on it, and some street corners had between two and four stores on it. And I was thinking, like, I grew up in rural Ohio, and I'm thinking, how can the city support a little store or four stores in every single corner? I didn't know at the time how, um, like it's funny, New Yorkers both walk everywhere and are like super fit, but are at the same time so lazy <laughs> that they would not go one more block to go to a different bodega unless that bodega offered something that the one below you didn't have because what also is sort of interesting about that I learned about bodega culture, one, that there are a lot of them, two, there's an incredible amount of things in a bizarrely tiny space. And I don't understand how they have everything you need in that space. But then also people have their bodega, right? Uh, in my old neighborhood, I had three. There was one I went to for regular groceries, the one I went to for fancy groceries, and the one I went to for bacon, egg, and cheeses, right? Yeah! And like, you know, after you've been in your neighborhood, like, you know those people's names and you obviously know the cat's name. And like, it becomes a part of your life here in the city that you have a personal relationship with these little stores. So I got really curious to know the history behind this like really New York institution and the fact that you have to define the word bodega for anyone who's living outside of New York. Like that word is so specific to here. And what I also think is so fascinating about the history of these little stores is that they are really reflective of immigrant culture here in New York City, of the different waves of people that have come to this country, come to this city, and used entrepreneurship to create opportunities for themselves and their families. Um, let me just drop a little statistic on you right now that I learned at, I, I would almost call it my former alma mater, the Tenant Lower East Side Tenement Museum. Couple tenementers in the audience tonight. Uh, I worked there for eight and a half years, and um, one statistic I learned there is that someone who has immigrated to this country is twice as likely to start their own business as someone who was born here. So entrepreneurship is a huge part of um, immigrant culture within America too. So it kind of begins at the beginning of immigrant culture. So New York was the home to the first non-English speaking ethnic enclave in the country. And that was this neighborhood, the Lower East Side. Yes. <laughs> It was such like, are we clapping for the Lower East Side? Great. I just like the slow clap. You're like, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but I bet there are some people in the audience that knows what this neighborhood was called in the 1860s. Can I hear it? That was more people than I expected. <laughs> so yeah, this is Kleine Deutschland, which of course, course means little Germany. And by the 1860s, New York City as a whole had so many German speakers. It was the third largest German speaking city in the planet. So the original bodegas are what we might call delicatessens. Um, and a deli the word delicatessen is a word that comes from Alsace-Lorraine. So it's the part of now France that was part of the German Empire. So it's like a German-speaking region of France. And that's what that word is. It's a German-French word that essentially means little delicious things to eat. 
So in, um, and it could be, it's both the name of the store, the sells the delicious things, a delicatessen, but you can also say, well, I sell delicatessen, little delicious things to eat. And the first delicatessen that opened in um, New York opened up on Grand Street in the Lower East Side in the 1860s. It was an immigrant from Berlin. And we even know um, what he sold in his store. I'm going to tell you. Um, he sold cooked meats, hard cheese, fancy canned food, imported teas, olive oil, other high-end groceries, as well as apricot jams and cakes over Christmas. So as opposed to like what we think of a deli today, this is a little bit more like if you've ever been to Schaller, nope, I've ruined it all. If you've ever been to Schaller and Weber um, up in York, Yorkville, Yorkville, took me a second, um, which is kind of the second German community after the Lower East Side. People started moving there in the 1880s. Um, so it is a specialty food store, but it is selling foods from Germany so these German immigrants can sort of connect to their home culture and selling fancy foods too. So in this big German immigration, about 10% of these people were German Jews. The other 90% were Catholics or Lutherans. And so that's why by the turn of the 20th century, um, a wave of Jewish immigrants came into this neighborhood because there already were some synagogues, there already were places um, where you could get kosher food, like a kosher delicatessen. And so this new wave of Jewish immigrants moved in and took over these delis, and that's how we got this idea of Jewish delis here in New York City, like Katz's, which allegedly opened um, in 1888. It's debatable, but it has been around and on Houston Street a really, really, really long time. At the same time the Jewish immigrants were coming, um, there was also an Italian immigration too, and they of course were also opening up little Italian grocery stores selling foods from home. So we could call the delicatessen and these Italian grocery stores, these are like the ancestors of modern bodegas. So how did we get to a modern bodega? That comes about in the 1940s and 50s. It happens when Puerto Rico becomes a commonwealth of America, and in 1917, um, people who live in Puerto Rico um, are allowed to have American citizenship. So keep in mind, too, that someone who comes here from Puerto Rico is not an immigrant. They are a migrant because Puerto Rico is part of our country. Um, and although that sort of migration uh, pathway had been available since 1917, it really was the advent of air travel that really brought Puerto Rican migration to New York City. Flights were direct from Puerto Rico to New York City, and they were really, really cheap, even in the 40s and 50s. So the population starts booming from a couple thousand to up to the tens of thousands. And for a very long time, Puerto Rican culture dominated um, Spanish-speaking culture in New York City. And they brought with them bodegas. So bodega... Applaud all your Puerto Rican friends. Thank you, Puerto Ricans. <laughs> so a uh, bodega is a word, it's a Spanish word, and in Spain it means a wine store. But that word, when it came into the Caribbean, began meaning these little grocery stores that were often in um, neighborhoods that were poorer, which is something you also see initially here in New York City, too. Um, but not necessarily. Like, they're doing the same thing as the German delicatessens in that they are specializing in groceries from home, that you can go there and you can get the Puerto Rican foods that you are used to from home. Um, and then later on, as bodegas begin opening up in non-Puerto non Rican neighborhoods, they will stock foods of whatever culture is that neighborhood. So they become this lifeline to wherever home is, and they're still called bodegas no matter where they are. And they're often turning up in neighborhoods that lack true grocery stores. And these are often lower income neighborhoods. So you can go to these places where you don't have a grocery store, and as opposed to a grocery store, the bodegas sold smaller sizes of things. So like one of the sort of you know, ideas that are often said about poverty is like, well, but it's cheaper to buy a dozen rolls of toilet paper, so you should do that. Yeah, but if you don't have the money for the dozen rolls of toilet paper, you have to, you can only buy one. Yeah, it's more expensive in the long run, but that's the kind of need-based economy. So at a bodega, you can go buy one roll of toilet paper, which I'm sure literally everyone in this room has done. <laughs> yes, me certainly out of just laziness, but I just the one, like that 99 cent roll of Scott's that just lasts forever, but really tears you up after a while. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So these images are actually from, um, uh, there was a Puerto Rican uh, bodeguero, bodeguero, 
that's a person who runs the Bodega Association. And for tax purposes and insurance purposes, they had to do a bunch of photographs in the 40s and 50s. So um, there is this sort of um, composite of all these different images of stores from the 40s and 50s. And then in the 60s, we also see a population of immigrants coming from the Dominican Republic. Um, I'm just going to put a footnote in and say America has been really shitty to both Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, like, for a really long time. You're welcome. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> we only have, like, it's only a 90-minute show, so, I, you know, get on the Wikipedia page. But, like, we did some really fucked up things in the Dominican Republic. We really, we installed Trujillo, which is just this horrible dictator, and he's assassinated in the early 1960s. And, like, maybe the one thing we did to redeem ourselves is we really opened the door to ref political refugees coming in from the Dominican Republic in the 60s and 70s. So they got essentially a special dispensation to come to this country, and a lot were ending up here in New York City where there already was a Spanish-speaking Caribbean presence. So we've got Puerto Rican bodegas, but then at the same time, we get this Dominican bodegas opening up too. And it's the same thing. They're selling foods from home. But not only that, even through the 70s and 80s, this might be where you go to use the phone um, because you might not have a telephone in your apartment, so you went down to the bodega. This is a place where people would post apartments for rent, where they'd post jobs, and generally where people hung out. It was a lifeline not just through food, but that's where your community was. That's where the news was coming from. That was a hangout spot in neighborhoods like the Lower East Side that classically doesn't we don't have very big apartments down here, right? New Yorkers as a whole, we don't tend to have friends over. We tend to go out and meet them at places like Caveat on the Lower East Side. <laughs> so that has been a part of New York culture forever, that these are places you go out in public and hang out in. Another thing that made bodegas so successful in New York City is that a lot of them are 24 hours. So they're offering um, 24 hours, they're offering groceries in the neighborhood where there weren't necessarily groceries, they're offering smaller sizes, and they're often really connected to the ethnic communities around them too. And by the 70s, we also get a new wave coming in, um, Korean grocers. So um, post-1965, uh, there's a law signed into effect called the Johnston-Reed Act, and in that law, it does away with race-based quotas, which had been in place in America since 1882, and was really specifically targeting, targeting a lot of Asian and South Asian countries. So this opens the door to a lot of waves of immigration from Korea. In the 60s and 70s, Korea's economy was not doing great, so a lot of people were coming to this country. Sometimes these um, stores that usually sort of focus on produce um, were called Korean groceries, but a lot of times they were called Korean bodegas, which I think is really great. So then we get this term sort of leaving Spanish culture and becoming a broader part of just New York culture. Oh, I do want to read you one more thing. So I read this interesting LA Times article, um, and it was about New York bodegas, and they went into a Dominican bodega and tried to categorize everything that was being sold. So this will probably sound familiar. Guava jelly, coconut milk, Wonder Bread, Goya beans, mango juice, juicy juice, cactus plants, blackened bananas, pork rinds, um, fabric softener, VO5, sun-kissed raspberry shampoo, <laughs> toilet paper, masking tape, plastic toy dolls, paintbrushes, barbecue lighters, Advil PM, flashlights, cigars, Fixident, Midol, a moldy package of coffee cake, canned octopus and garlic, Vienna sausages, toy guns, a Puerto Rican flag, and $2 calling cards that read Conversacion. <laughs> so that's what you can find in your typical New York bodega to this day. So waves of immigration come and go. There's push and pull factors. You learned about this in, in school. So like as things change back home, we start to see less people coming. For example, Korea's economy is great now, South Korea's economy, and so we don't really see immigrants coming from South Korea anymore. We still do see people coming from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, but not in the same numbers. And um, I mean, when you have sort of a, a business like this, this is a really hard business to run. Many immigrants become entrepreneurs because they might lack um, the educational certificates that would allow them to have get a professional job in America, or they may lack the language skills, or honestly, they may not be able to find work because of racism. So when you can't find work, you make your own work. But this is hard. You know, if your store is 24 hours, then someone's got to be manning that store 24 hours a day. And even if it isn't, maybe you're the one working 15 or 16 hours a day, seven days a week to make this store happen. 
So you're doing this because for your children, you want something better. You want them to go to college. You don't want them to come to the store. And only about 3% of family-run businesses make it into the third generation of being family-owned. And even statistics um, amongst Korean grocers, for example, in the 1990s, about 22% of Korean immigrants were self-employed, and now only about 2% of Korean Americans are self-employed. So you can see that there's this big drop-off after the next generation. This is not what you want for your kids. These stories don't get passed down along family lines. So less immigrants, and you don't want your kids to do this work, so that means that we see another turnover. And most bodegas in um, New York City today are owned by people who come from countries that are predominantly Muslim. And the most common uh, bodega owners right now are Yemeni bodegas. So oftentimes they were given stores that used to belong to Dominican or Puerto Rican communities. And in a couple family stories, um, they talk about their parents who came into these bodegas, learned Spanish before they learned English to serve the local population. So you're always multilingual. You can speak your own language, you can speak English, you can speak Spanish too. And the Yemeni bodega owners really um, came into the spotlight recently because of the Muslim ban. Yemen is one of the countries that um, people are no longer allowed to immigrate from currently to this country. Um, and in February 2017, they organized a bodega strike. This sign, you didn't know that? This sign says store will be closed Thursday, February 2nd from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. We will stand against Trump's executive order. Um, so about a thousand different stores closed. This one is really poignant. Closed, my family is detained at JFK. Right. So a thousand stores uh, closed their doors and then they marched out and marched down to City, Man uh, City Hall in Manhattan. You can see how many people are rallying. And one of the things that was noted pretty heavily in the press is although there were many Yemen flags flying, there were far more American flags flying. And one of the points that the people standing in this crowd made, and they made through their speeches, um, and the speeches were often in Arabic, is they were pointing out that they're citizens of this country. But their families, their parents, their brothers and sisters um, who have already paid to come here, it's very expensive to immigrate when you get in line and do it legally, um, were now being denied access and had to turn around and go back home. And they wanted to organize this strike, these closing of bodegas, to show what an important part of the fabric of the city these Muslim men and women are. So it was a really beautiful and really powerful event and a really New York event too. And Gail Brewer, uh, the Manhattan Borough President, came up and gave a really inspiring speech too, saying, you know, we're here, we're Americans, we're on your side too. Um, a lot of bodegas in general have started to close though. Um, and it's something that we're seeing really all over Manhattan, this urban blight that's being caused by the fact that um, commercial rents are rising. They've rise about 34% in the past 10 years. By the way, uh, residential rents have risen 50% in the last 10 years and New Yorker salaries have gone down by 5%. So fuck. Um, same thing is happening in commercial businesses and landlords are more willing to push out a tenant and leave a storefront open, open waiting for a national chain like a Dwayne Reed or a Walgreens or a bank like Chase Bank because those bring in the real money. So we're seeing a lot of closed and empty storefronts and bodegas are being particularly affected. Right around the recession, we saw about 3,000 bodegas closed between 2007 and 2009. The last year I have statistics for is 2015, and 75 bodegas closed that year. Um, however, there are still about 12,000 bodegas open in the city, and a lot of them are changing and adapting to the way their neighborhoods are changing. There is um, a local bodega that, again, I'm very familiar with from working down here at the Tenement Museum that was called Happiness, um, and it was on Delancey Street. And a couple years ago, their building was bought, the landlord jacked up their commercial rent, and it was actually the first time the bodega closed um, in over 30 years. It was a 24-hour bodega um, run in three shifts by family members, and that was the first time it closed it do its door, including Hurricane Sandy. They stayed open. So they didn't know what they were gonna do for a while, but they ended up finding another commercial space about two blocks away. And um, when it was on Delancey, it was a very like classic tiny bodega space. You had your bacon, egg and cheeses, you had your Advil behind the counter. But now there's also like seaweed snacks and uh, kind of like organic milk behind the counter. So you're starting to see these new bodegas popping up that are offering uh, huge craft beer selections and organic ingredients and Tate's cookies too. 
Um, and this is one that I found that opened on Staten Island, which is <laughs> the fanciest bodega I've ever seen. <laughs> but that's adapting, that's survival in the way that New York is adapting and changing. Um, and now uh, you might remember too last summer that there was an entire bodega made from felt um, as a tribute to what this artist felt was um, a dying environment in New York City. I can't imagine a New York City without bodegas. Even if you can order groceries, even if they build uh, another freaking Whole Foods in the Lower East Side, it's still not the same when it's 2 a.m. and you just really want an ice cream sandwich. You know where you're gonna go. So we're gonna take a 10 minute break and when we come back, it's gonna be time for a Bodega Cats. We'll see you soon. All right, we have returned. Usually for story time, I talk first because you're tired of hearing Sarah talk. Sick of hearing me. But now you're just like, I want to hear Sarah talk forever. So Let's she's going to go Sarah. first. It's going to be great. Uh, it's really because like, I'm going to talk about a thing that will transition into his thing. And what I'm going to talk about is cats. One thing that I've learned from following uh, Bodega Cats on Instagram is that cats love sleeping on bags of chips. They love it. And now that I've said it, you're going to notice it both on the internet and in person. Look at how cozy that They're looks. They're pillows. Yeah. It's They're the just best. bags of air. So if you ever buy a bag of chips and it's crumpled into a million crumbles, you know why, because there's a cat sleeping on it. So let's talk about cats. We're going to talk actually about the history of cats uh, <laughs> because, because it's relevant. So we're going to begin by going back 12,000 years which is about the time that scientists estimate that cats were domesticated. Um, and it corresponds to also when human beings um, develop agriculture and settle down in Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent, because the two things are linked. Basically, we were now storing, growing and storing grain, and cats were like, well, look at all these mice that are trying to eat this grain. And they were like, look at all those cats that are eating the mice. Like, I'm going to encourage them to stick around. And what I think is amazing, like, Dogs were domesticated before cats, and humans actively bred and domesticated dogs. Cats picked us. They decided to move in with us, which I think is so charming. And your cat in your room is still choosing to live with you. That cat is still a wild cat. Like, when the apocalypse comes, most dogs are screwed. Cats, they're back to being wild in one generation. Like, there's no difference between them and a wild cat. So, like... I think that's charming because I feel like cats always get this rap of like being not emotional or whatever, whatever. Your cat is deciding to stay with you. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yes. 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 It's a symbiotic and mutually beneficial relationship. It, that, that's the idea. So um, just another interesting sign out of cats. Just like witches. Yeah. So same. here is a witch, and witches, as we know, have pointy hats, brooms, cauldrons, and black cats. Well, the idea of a witch is actually based on the imagery used by Middle Ages people who made beer, which beer making was done by women in the Middle Ages, and usually it was single women, uh, women who were often widowed or had never married. And they would wear really tall pointy hats when they would sell beer at markets so that you could see where to buy beer. And if they um, worked in, like, out of a brew house, when a new batch of beer was done, they would hang a broom outside. This can't be true. It is absolutely true. There are dozens of academic papers about this. But wait, there's more. Are you ready? No. So they would make beer in big black cauldrons. That's where you would boil and ferment the warts. And then, of course, if you've got all that grain sitting around that you need to make beer, what would be handy to have? A black cat. A black cat. Oh, God. And so um, brewers became witches when um, men decided to form brewing guilds and wanted to take the industry away from women. So they just demonized the women. We're bad. And we went from, like, I just make beer, and everybody loves me because I make beer, and I'm a single woman making my way in the world. And then we're like, you're a witch. <laughs> She's going to poison you. So you're like, yeah, well, we wanted to brew. So that's fun. <laughs> so there's, like, cats have always been, we've always had this idea of working dogs, but, like, you know, they herd sheep and shit. But, like, cats have always been working cats. They're always out there getting those mice for us, whether you are live in Mesopotamia or whether you were a brewer and now maybe a witch. Um, 
So the obvious benefit of having a cat in your store is it's going to do the same thing. It's going to provide pest control. So that is the obvious reason that um, there are bodega cats. This created a store a stir on the internet. This is a, <laughs> a Yelp review. It says, I've ordered from SK before, that's the bodega, and the sandwiches are pretty good. Today, however, I decided to stop in and grab a sandwich. To my dismay, there was a cat perched upon some cases of Budweiser in the middle of the store, exclamation point, exclamation point. Besides being allergic to cats, I wonder what the health code says about this. One of the comments below it says, how miserable of a person do you have to be to leave a Yelp review of bodegas complaining about bodega cats? So like on one hand, you're like, all right, I see your point. You're allergic to cats. But on the other, you're like, you leave my bodega cats out of this. So here's the deal with bodega cats. Um, it actually is illegal to have a cat in a place where you um, sell or make food. Um, so if, you, uh, if the health inspectors come and they see a cat in your store, they're going to fine you $300. However, cats don't just catch mice and rats. The mere presence of a cat in a space Mice and rats smell the cat and tend to avoid that space altogether. So actually, most working cats don't have to do a lot of work at all because it's really rare that they a rat- They sleep on bags of chips. They just sleep on bags of chips They're all day. They're working. They're working hard. And they prowl. There was one really adorable quote from a store owner that was like, uh, in the morning, she's lazy. That's when she sleeps on the bags of chips. But in the afternoon, she goes on the prowl and takes care of the store. So the bodega owners were literally losing thousands of dollars to in damages to rodents. This one guy in an article I read was talking about, they were like eating holes in the Lipton soup and like, you know, all of his goods were getting ruined and he was dealing with mouse poop, so we got a cat. But you can get fined about $350 per citation for having a cat in your store. However, you can also get cited by a health inspector for having rodent poop in your store and the fine is $300. So many bodega owners decide to keep the cat because they know it's better for the sanitation of their store and for their business and just accept the fines because it's about the same as getting fined for the rodent poop that would be there without the cat. So after this went online, um, someone actually formed a petition to make bodega cats legal. And it wasn't the best written petition that I've ever read. It says, Mr. de Blasio, all one word, all lowercase. <laughs> As a longtime New Yorker, I grew up seeing cats inside of bodegas. I would like to see it made legal to have cats in a bodega in New York. Cats keep rodents out of food products and other pests at bay. You don't want to see fecal matter from rodents in a bodega, right? It's I true. don't either. And then this next line I actually found pretty relevant. How can people find it acceptable to bring a dog into a restaurant where there is food that isn't wrapped and being brought out and about? Thank you. And the next line says, as opposed to having a cat in a store where everything is prepackaged and wrapped up. So it's like, yeah, it's legal to have your dog on a restaurant patio, but you can't have a cat that's actually doing work for that bodega in a bodega store. It got um, almost 6,000 supporters. Bodega cats aren't legalized, but I'm kind of like, feel like I want to bring that back. Never happened. But Never happened. this idea of working cats has really been catching on in cat adoption societies. Because oftentimes, as someone so was saying, if the cats, if the kitten hasn't made contact with humans before its eyes change color, it will never love humans. So that's how you get feral cats. That's what that means. It's a cat that wasn't exposed to humans early enough, and so they're, they're afraid. So if a cat is feral or otherwise an asshole, essentially, um, different adoption programs um, label them as working cats, and they um, will adopt them out for free to warehouses, breweries, bodegas, um, and even there's um, some of the, uh, well, you're going to talk more about this, but a lot of times feral cats are trapped in New York and re-released, and if they for some reason can't be released, maybe where they lived is now a construction site, they release them in areas of need. So they release them in places where there's a rodent problem. Um, a couple years ago, they released six cats into the loading docks at the Javits Center, and they all still live there and like just take care of the rodents at the Javits Center. And this is like a whole thing that's happening about New York that I didn't know about until today. So now when you go to the SPCA, you might see um, certain cats labeled working cats. And I love that idea that cats who aren't necessarily comfortable with humans are still perceived as having value. I think that's really, really beautiful. So get out there and go pet your local bodega cat. Soma, would you like to add something? No, you stole literally everything I talk about. Don't I'm just going to complain. Oh, I get to stand over here? Okay, all right. It's new over here. So I was reading this article in the New York Times about bodega cats and about how fines 
Fines for having a bodega cat range from $300 for a first offense to through $2,000 or higher for subsequent offenses. And I'm like, that's crazy. And then I tried to fact check it, and I looked at this cool-ass spreadsheet. Um, and then you zoom in on the bottom, and uh, live animal other than fish in tank or service animal. So <laughs> fish <laughs> tanks are totally cool, but I don't think bodega fish are going to be a thing. <laughs> and so the lowest fine, first offense, 200, second offense, 200, third offense, 250, and it just keeps going from there, only up to 350. I wasn't really impressed by that number. That's not 2,000. Here's the thing that's um, like kind of crazy for me, because like you can see you can also get fined for food in contact with toxic material. Like The health department wants the store owners to use rat poison instead of cats. Like They don't want cat hair, but they will allow poison in the yeah. bodegas. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But also, oh, filth flies. That's a terrible... All of those things cost the same amount as bodega cats. So like, if you have a bodega cat and it keeps away rats and mice, you're saving money in this the long run. This is also why you only see the frogs come out in Chinatown after 5 p.m. after the um, health department workers won't make a surprise visit because you're not, have not allowed to have live frogs and turtles. We have frogs all the time in Sunset Park. Yeah, there's frogs so everywhere. I don't know. Yeah. We but don't have rules usually there. Usually they just sort of... In, in Manhattan Chinatown, this neighborhood, they appear post 5 p.m. And uh, like bodega cats, it's just a New York thing. So what do you notice about this guy? Fucked up ears, right? Bad news. And you're like, what's up with that guy's ears? There's trouble. Um, so a lot of unfixed cats who are males, like so unfixed cats that are females, they go into heat and they just want to get boned. Unfixed cats <laughs> that are males, they spray, they want a bone, but they're real aggressive about it and they want to fight other male cats for territory. So when you see cats with like crazy ears, it's because they're probably male and they haven't been fixed and they're just out on the prowl for ladies, but instead of meeting ladies, they meet men and they do <laughs> what any self-respecting man would do and just tries to beat up that other man. <laughs> um, but then you might see cats like this uh, with like a clipped ear. Zoom in, enhance. <laughs> uh, so, so this is not like the cleanest fight that's ever happened. Uh, this is called ear tipping. And what ear tipping is, is when you have a cat that is feral, that doesn't like people, um, or you think it doesn't like people, because this one clearly does, because it's posing for a picture in a bodega, um, you take the cat and then you fix it and you clip its ear and you release it back out. And so when you see cats that are like out living their lives on the streets, oftentimes you will see them having ear tips. It's something called TNR, uh, Trap Neuter Release. It's the official program, or it's an officially endorsed program by New York City. It took a long time to make it happen. We don't kill feral cats in New York City. We trap them, we fix them, we re-release them. And ones that are kind, you're usually not re-released. However, both you and I have really darling, lovely kitties. Um, you want to show the picture of yours? I'll show a picture later. That are yeah. ear We'll clips. get there. Yeah. yeah. That got yeah. accidentally re-released, essentially. Now live with us. But like the idea is like you don't want a bunch of cats having babies um, because so Luca, Lucifer Snowball is his full name. Um, he had two siblings, but guess what they did? They died because that's all kittens do. Um, so if you don't want kittens to die, you should probably have cats get fixed who are on the street. Um, and then here's him getting bigger and him getting bigger. And this cat here, uh, Stumpy, she lived in the backyard of the Brainery and she was ear tipped. But all she wants to do is just party all the time. She just wants her belly rubbed. And so, yeah, so there there are a lot of cats who are ear-tipped who aren't actually feral cats, who like human beings. Um, but whatever, you have a yeah. ear-tipped cat. Yeah, Patty. Cat. And the point is that so it's so you can make a visual confirmation so you don't re-trap and re-fix a cat because that would be fucked up. I had a cat I was trying to trap the other day, and I was trying to trap this one cat, and he kept walking around. He was too stupid to go in the trap. And then there was this other cat who was like, I'm all about it. And I was like, you have an ear tip. And I had to kept chasing her away and chasing her away. And then my trap didn't work because it's a stupid folding trap. It was terrible. <laughs> if you want to know about TNR stuff, talk to me afterwards, and I'll tell you a lot of facts. Uh, it'll be great. And we have a workshop at the Brainery coming up in July. And if you don't want to talk to me because you hate talking to people, neighborhoodcats.org, they have the best workshops where you can get a bunch of free stuff for cat care, whatever. So... Um, is this what I'm talking about now? I guess so. <laughs> All right. Sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> you just do this in because you love data. Uh, this is story time. Someone's the head of the data journalism <laughs> department at Columbia. And yeah. so welcome to data. Here it comes. I have a real at job. You. We do data stuff. Uh, so this is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. What they did was 
they were like, hey, people, track what you're eating for two days. Um, and then I kind of jacked something that 538 did. And by kind of, I mean pretty much 100%. But I did a little more analysis, which maybe makes it okay. No. Uh, I did it with newer data. So I downloaded all this data where they tracked what people ate over two days. And if you ate a sandwich, it wasn't just like, I ate a sandwich. They're like, list everything that was in that sandwich. And so there's like data, data, data. It's fun and it's crazy. So I got a bunch of like graphs <laughs> about sandwiches for you. Who doesn't want that? So <laughs> the most popular number of ingredients on a sandwich that human beings eat, this is what, I think there's like 6,000 sandwiches, 6,822 sandwiches in this data set. So given about 7,000 sandwiches, generally people only put three things. That includes bread. That's like, yeah, that's like nothing, right? I don't know. What kind of bread do people put their sandwiches on? Whatever. All right, you're yelling. Rye's not even on here, sorry. Um, yeah, mostly white bread, but then there's like, there's wheat, and then there's whole wheats, and I'm like, those are technically different, but no one knows what the difference is. So in theory, wheat and white are kind of the same. It's fine. What about multigrain? That's kind of the same thing, too. It's, well, it's got like sprinkles on it, so it's <laughs> different. Um, what's the most popular kind of cheese for a sandwich? Second most popular is? I said Swiss too. It's wrong. Cheddar's number two. Sorry. So American by a huge degree. American on sandwiches that are not grilled cheese sandwiches, horrible. Horrible. Disagree. Cheddar on sandwiches, also generally pretty bad. All the other ones are fine. I don't know what they meant by this one. <laughs> it didn't say m mystery in the data. It said NFS, but I didn't really want to look it up, so it's fine. Um, and then cheese spread is number nine. I don't, I don't know. How many of those people, I mean, I guess maybe people in the South really love sandwiches. I don't know. So, all right. Uh, as I said before, most people only three ingredients, but then some people have a lot more. Uh, the biggest sandwich had 14 ingredients on it, um, which was, it was a hamburger with Thousand Island mushroom, pepper, bacon, onions. So it's like a, a pretty solid uh, cheeseburger right there. And then there are a bunch of that are tied for second place, having 12 ingredients. This one's a, <laughs> I don't know. It has ham, pepperoni, and salami, but then it also has barbecue sauce. So it, did they go to Subway? Not sure. Um, <laughs> the next one is like a mustard, ham, beef, I don't know, pepper. That sounds good. <laughs> then the other was beef. I don't know. People eat sandwiches, and they have a lot of ingredients. It's weird. So then, then, so maybe you've read on the internet things about machine learning or algorithms or whatever. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take 7,000 sandwiches, and I'm going to feed it to a computer and say, computer, if I taught you the ingredients in 7,000 sandwiches, what are, like, the three archetypes of sandwich that exist? Like, can you go through this and analyze humanity and figure out what people eat on sandwiches? And the answer is yes. Uh, ham or chicken sandwiches and cheeseburgers and peanut butter and jelly. So if you eat a sandwich, it is one of those three types. Computers know everything. Watch out for the future. <laughs> You're going to get screwed. And I have another story. Jeez Louise, I'm never. Look. Yeah, it's fine. So I worked at I worked at Subway um, once upon a time, and then I moved to New York. And I love sandwiches; they're my favorite food. And then I'm telling this so fast. Uh, and then I moved to New York, and then here you have Boar's Head all over the. Here you have it. Like I've lived here forever. Um, we have it together as a family. Um, and so I got a tattoo at some point, and the story that I tell people are like, "Hey." what's your tattoo about? And I'm like, oh, well, I worked at Subway and I really love turkey sandwiches. And then I moved to New York and then I fell in love with boar's head turkey. So now I have a tattoo that is <laughs> representative of boar's head turkey. And I tell this story and you can watch people's faces just melt as I'm telling it. And they're like, that's not what he's going to say. That's not what he's going to say. And then I say it and they're like, fuck, I got to get out of here. But it's not true. It's based on this coin. Okay, where? 
We're going to take a break for like 30 seconds, get another drink, and then I'm going to talk more. Ah. All right. So as I said before, I know about deli stuff, so I'm going to talk about deli stuff because we're just going to assume that all bodegas have a deli, all proper bodegas have a deli. It's not true, but also you already know that I worked at Subway. You know all of my secrets. This is not not really fair. Um, so I worked at Subway when I was a teenager because I had a job like all good teenagers do. And when I was working there, a lot of magic things happened. Like my coworkers would hotbox the walk-in fridge <laughs> or like we would break things and blame it on children or like <laughs> we would we closed it for dinner for prom night and we just had like a, a subway feast for prom night. I don't know. Um, but the one thing that really stuck with me after all of this time was when we got meat. It would come in these bags, pre-sliced bags, wonderful bags. And on the one for ham, it said ham and water product. <laughs> and I was amazed by that. And like every day I wake up and I'm like, ham and water product. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because um, you assume it could just say ham because it looks like ham. But no, it's ham and water product. Um, so anytime that you have something that seems like it's skirting saying what it is, like chocolatey or like chocolate flavor, like you know something has gone terribly wrong and someone is lying to you. So we're gonna kind of explore what ham and water product is and like why ham and water product is and like all of ham and water products friends and just like all, all this, all it's actually, we figure out what this is in like 30 seconds and then we go from there, but that's fine. You're all okay. Um, so when you get ham like this is a ham and this is a ham but neither of those hams are just the ham that comes off of the back of the pig right like you go to the store and you're like give me a ham and they're like here's a big hunk of meat and then you cook it or whatever but anytime you're getting something that is not just that vibrating piece of ham um, it has been processed it is some sort of processed meat so like this thing over here totally processed this thing over here also totally processed. doesn't have a bone in it, so it's been processed. There are different degrees of processing. We'll go through all of that. But it's a product. Like, they are not giving you a piece of meat. They are giving you a product. Uh, and all of the things that are deli meats, these are all products that have been taken from their, you know, home inside of an animal uh, and then converted into something that we put on an 18-ingredient sandwich, <laughs> as, as you do when the government's watching you. Um, so we're going to talk about like where they come from, what they're made of, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a ham, right? It's a ham, and that's a ham there, um, ham and water product. If you buy ham, there are four different categories of ham by law that you can purchase. Number one is called ham, <laughs> <laughs> which is 20.5% protein with no added water. Does that number seem low to you? You're like 20.5% protein. The thing you're forgetting is that muscle is like, water. It's like we're bags of water that happen to be able to walk around. Um, and the same thing with a pig. Any kind of meat you get is about 65 to 75% water. And then about 20% protein and like 5% fat and like other stuff. So when we're talking about 20.5% protein, that's actually pretty good. That's kind of not the maximum amount of protein, but like it's pretty close to the max. This is just I cut something off of a pig and I'm handing it right to you. Next up, ham with natural juices, 18.5% protein, up to 7% added water. Ham with water added actually has more water added, 17% protein, 10% water. We are still not yet at ham and water product. Uh, eventually, you get to ham and water product. There aren't rules. <laughs> it's just like, oh, this has water and ham? Yeah. That's fine. That's all we need. Um, so I assume that if I made like coconut water, but it was ham water, you could call it ham and water product and you would be fine. It would be a delicious hammy drink. You'd love it. Um, so when you go to the store and you're buying meat, when you're buying ham-based products, uh, the thing that is going to affect the price is probably how much protein is in it, how much meat is in it. Because if you get something that's 20% protein and you get something that's 10% protein, one of those has like twice as much stuff that's not water in it, so you should be paying twice as much. So when they're like, Boris had $100, 
something else, one dollar, you're like, that $99 difference is just because I'm paying for actual ham instead of paying for a bunch of water. So now you know everything about ham and water products, and you can leave if you need to. Um, but uh, now we're going to get to, like, the real stuff, like turkey breast, right? Like oven gold, ever roast, all these amazing names for all the boar's head stuff. Who here has ever seen, like, a turkey or a chicken or any sort of fowl? Are they that big? Like, is that, like, the size of, like, a turkey breast? No. <laughs> no. So th this is not, they didn't just slice it off a turkey and they're like, here you go, I got it from a turkey. That's not what happened. Because if that happened, like, they would have to be like dinosaurs. <laughs> but that's not the case. It's processed foods, so like anything goes, it's fine, no big deal. So the way that you get this huge turkey breast, how do you think you do it? Yeah, you take like a bunch of breasts and you push them together and it's fine and it just works, right? So. The same thing happens with hams. Like if you go buy a ham and it's like square, like it's ham on, like the ham muscle is not just square muscle. Um, it is, it, these are called formed meats, which sounds horrifying, but it's not really that bad, I promise. So here's what happens. You have a bunch of turkey breasts and you're like, all right, first thing we have to do is we have to brine them. And you're like, how are you gonna brine them? I'm like, I got a machine and it's got needles on it and it goes like this. <laughs> um, and it's, it's called a stitch injector, and it just pounds into the meat and injects brine into the meat. And this is not a bad thing. Like, it's just if you've got some flavors and you want to put it in it, this is not uh, turkey. This is actually pastrami um, that sold at fine New York establishments. But that's a normal thing for just brining because you want to get your flavor all up on the inside, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so it's not necessarily cheating. But the thing is, after you have injected it with the stitch injector, you want to glue all those, those turkey breasts together. <laughs> and you're like, how do I do that? <laughs> do I use glue? No, that's not what you do. You could use transglutamate. You could use carrageenan. Uh, you can use like weird compounds. But I'm like, no, I want to go all natural with this so I can talk about science and show you my favorite science diagram of all time. So here's what happens. When you have a piece of meat, this is not turkey. Uh, when you have a piece of meat, uh, the muscle has a grain to it, right? It has like a direction. And you've never really thought about like, what does that mean? What is it? And I'm like, here's a diagram. Um, this is a muscle fiber. And a muscle fiber is kind of like a power cord or like a Cat5 cable, like any kind of cable. You got a big cable and you got tiny cables inside of it and it just gets small forever. Um, except instead of carrying electricity or whatever, I mean, I guess they kind of do. Um, <laughs> Uh, they have protein inside of them. And isn't this a fun diagram? This is probably the most exciting diagram that I've ever found when doing science stuff. Because it's always like, here's like some like uh, some circles and lines connecting them. But this one is a fun one, and it has this crazy pink stuff on it. Um, so we're talking about proteins. Proteins are the important thing, like collagen, actin, myosin. The only one that matters is myosin. Myosin is your best friend. When you leave here tonight, your vocabulary word is going to be myosin. You're probably not going to know what it does, but just remember myosin, myosin. If someone says myosin, you're like, yeah, I know that guy. <laughs> He's my friend. So um, when you brine your turkey breast, when you brine something, it has salt in it because that's what makes it a brine. And if you were awake in middle school, you learned about osmosis, where things move from higher concentration to lower concentration. And so when you have a bunch of salt over here and not a bunch of salt over there, a bunch of water over here and not water over there, like things go back and forth and they mix up. And what happens is the salt goes back and forth and like proteins dissolve and proteins go back and forth. And this is all on the surface of your meat. And so the myosin is like having a hell of a time being moved around. And you're, you have it in a tumbler and the tumbler is tumbling it. And the myosin is just like, I'm so tired of this. I'm getting fucked up. This is horrible. And it starts to get real sticky. And if you want to see a picture of myosin, here are a bunch of drawings. Um, never in life have I seen such an excellent illustration of anything in science. And I think it's because they look like sperm. And everyone that does science illustration or any kind of illustration just loves like phallic things, even if it's just little sperm. So what happens is this myosin gets tossed around and mixed with salt and like really screwed up and it gets real sticky. And uh, it's like a glue. It's like a meat glue. And so it comes out of the meat and the meat gets sticky and you just put the meat next to the other meat and you're like great you're stuck together now you used to be three meats and now you're one meat and that's all you're really asking for right 
So you take all these meats and you dump them in a mold, as you do. Not this mold, though, <laughs> because it's too small. You need, like, a real big mold. And you just dump them all in there. And this is a screenshot from Modern Marvel's uh, Season 13, Episode 41, called Cold Cuts. It's a pretty good episode. You should watch it. Um, and you dump them into this crazy mold. And then the mold they're cooked inside of this mold. And the myosin that was screwed up by salt uh, gels. And then it just makes all the turkey breasts stick together like they're one big turkey breast. Like we have like a farm <laughs> full of all kinds of other dinosaurs. Um, and then they like sprinkle some coatings on it. And then they're like, great, we got some stuff. We're going to sell you and it's going to be great. So all of these products are produced in the same way is they're like stitch injected and then they're tumbled around and then they're made sticky and they're put in the mold and then they're cooked a little bit and they stick together and you're like, great, this is one animal's part of their body and we get to eat it and it's delicious and wonderful. But let's say you have two pieces of turkey breast and you try to put them together and you know, they kind of fit together but they don't exactly fit together, right? Like it's pretty close but it's not, it's not quite there. And you don't want air bubbles in your turkey because that would be gross and it would ruin the illusion that you have a giant turkey that's creating this breast for you. So what you do is you just throw some like ground turkey in there, right? Because like that's fine. And you're like, I'm going to fill up all these little spaces and it's fine. And like it came out of a turkey. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it came out of a turkey. It's fine. So this is a slippery slope that we start to go down because once <laughs> it's true, once we stop having just whole pieces of uh, turkey breast that we are kind of gluing together, and we start to use like ground turkey to fill in holes. You're like, well, what about we use some filler in there? Some filler seems good, right? There are actually two kinds of filler. There's fillers and there are extenders. So over here we have a filler, such so as whole wheat flour. Um, and it's just like, you're like, uh, put some flour in there. It'll make it go further. On the right-hand side, you have extenders. And extenders are the same things as fillers, but they have high protein content. Um, so the one on top is soy concentrate. And then this is just like trimmings down here. Did anyone read the thing about uh, Subway's chicken? So that when you get chicken at Subway, it's like 80% soy concentrate, and it's like barely any chicken at all. It's amazing. So they're like, oh, we don't need filler. We just need extenders, and that's the entire food that we're making. It's just nothing but extenders, which is kind of baloney, right? Like what, what, <laughs> what kind of animal did you just cut a baloney from? And then put it in a form. <laughs> so when you, ha you have formed meats, which is what we talked about before, and bologna is something called an emulsified, it's like an emulsified sausage. And by like, I mean it is an emulsified sausage. Because deli meats are really just sausages that we don't put in tubes. We put them in like big loafs, so we somehow think that they're not sausages. Um, but mortadella, hot dogs, kibazi, like all these things, these are all emulsified sausages. So if you forget what emulsification is, it's this. Uh, it's where you take two things that don't mix, such as fat and, no, such as oil and uh, water, oil and vinegar, and you mix them up, and then somehow you force them to combine. Uh, in this case, what we're mixing is fat and meat. Fat is basically the same thing as oil. Uh, and as we talked about before, muscle is basically the same thing as water. Uh, so to get them to mix together is kind of tough. But you do it. You make it happen. You make it work. Um, but in order to do this, you have a bunch of fatty meat. Because you're like, oh, I'm making bologna. I need, like, garbage meat. It has a lot of fat in it, whatever. But the thing is, you can't have that much fat if you're making an emulsion. Um, you need a bunch of lean meat. And you're like, where am I going to get a bunch of cheap lean meat? And then someone's like, hey, remember that time that we cut up all those chicken breasts? What about all the stuff that's still attached that's not the chicken breast? Because, like, we've all eaten chicken... <laughs> And it's, I tried to find a picture of like a half-eaten like roasted chicken from the grocery store, but everything just was like stock photos. So I just took a screenshot of all of them at the same time. Um, so they're like, what are we going to do? How We want this meat, right? Because like it's just going to waste. Like let's, let's put it in bologna. It'll be fine. Um, so do you hire a bunch of people to like show up to like scrape all this meat off for you? No way. We live in the future. Um, <laughs> use a poultry meat bone separator. So I'm going <laughs> to... If, okay, don't sound like this now, <laughs> because it's only going to get worse. Um, if you have not hung out on YouTube and watched 
like videos like selling the the amazingness of industrial products you probably should okay so you put the the bony meat in it enters a separating unit under the enforced pressure of the separating screw rod the chicken meat paste comes out through clearance and bone residues are transported to the bone exit pushed by the screw rod. Right? And that's what you get. Right? And so you're like, oh, it's gross. And everyone on the internet was like, oh, it's gross, pink slime. It's great. Guess what? Like, reduce, reuse, recycle. Like, this is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful product that's just made out of meat. Like, there's no difference between this and the chicken breast. Well, there's no difference. I mean, it has a lot more cartilage and stuff. But generally speaking, this is just meat. It's just meat that would otherwise go to waste. So, like, stop being so, like, oh, I don't like pink slime. I love pink slime. It's the best. <laughs> and you can put it into molds, and then you can make chicken nuggets because that's what chicken nuggets are made out of. But if you need to – you have this fat and you have this meat, and you want to, like, put it in suspension. This is a joke about suspense. Um, so you want to put it – because technically it's not an emulsion, it's a suspension, but literally no one has ever called it a suspension. So if you want to suspend this fat and this meat, and you're like, if only I had something that was sticky that could like hold together all of this fat and this meat and not have it come apart, and you're like, oh wait, our friend Myosin, <laughs> who you mix it with salt and then you tumble it around a lot and then it gets sticky and it solves literally every problem in the world. Now, you're like, I'm never going to do this because I'm never going to industrial, industrially produce bologna. And I'm like, but who here has ever made a hamburger on the grill and they fall apart and you're so sad? What you can do is add salt to it and then work it a little bit. And then guess what? It gets sticky and it sticks to itself and it doesn't fall apart. So there you go. Price of admission right there. <laughs> um, and if you don't care about myosin, if you're just like a terrible person who wants to make terrible hot dogs, just fillers, just fillers forever. It'll be great. Um, <laughs> if, if you read or watch videos about making all of these emulsified products, they're always like, just like cake batter, just like cake batter, cake batter, cake batter. I mean, I guess, but I don't know. Next time you eat a cake, just think about it. <laughs> Pink slime. Um, things like olive loaf. Who doesn't eat that every day? It's it's the same thing as an emulsified sausage. It just happens to have other stuff thrown into it, because why not? Um, pepperoni, salami, all of that. It is between formed meats and uh, emulsified sausages. You just have, like, chunks of stuff, like chunks of fat and chunks of meat. And you're like, oh, I got these chunks of fat and chunks of meat. Like, how do I get them all to stick together? And the answer is myosin, obviously, all, always, all the time. So, yeah, that's what makes them stick together. Then you shove them in a casing and hope they don't fall apart. So I'm sorry, this isn't actually deli meat, but it's fine. It proves a point. Uh, when you buy deli meats, they love to preach whether they have nitrates or nitrites. And they never say, like, yes, we have nitrates and nitrites. They're always like, no, we don't have that. Uh, we hate them. They're bad. They sound like chemicals. So clearly, who wants them in their food? No one. Um, but you do. Uh, so has anyone ever made sausage? Okay, so yeah, uh, you use uh, curing salt, which is pink salt. Um, it's salt that has had sodium nitrite or sodium nitrate added to it. The reason it's pink is because you'll die if you use it like normal salt. Um, so they don't want you to accidentally mistake it for normal salt. Um, but basically what sodium nitrate and sodium nitrite does is uh, prevent botulism from growing. So if you have cured meats, they like hang out just around in like wherever for a while. And in uh, an environment without air, botuliz botulism is like, hey, I want to grow. But you're like, no, I don't want to die. Um, so you add sodium nitrate or sodium nitrite to it, uh, and that prevents botulism from growing, so you can eat salami and all of those things. Also, it's what gives bacon its flavor and its color. So this is pork belly, and that is bacon, and that tastes good, and this tastes fine. And it's because of the nitrates and the nitrites in there. Um, and you're like, why do you keep saying nitrates and nitrites? And I'm like, well, so nitrite is what kills the stuff. Nitrite is, is the killer of bot It doesn't kill botulism. It prevents it from growing. Um, but if you want something to sit around for a long time, that nitrite is just going to disappear. So what you do is you do nitrates, and it's able to go 
into the future, and the nitrates convert to nitrites, and then slowly over time, it cures all of your bacon together and prevents you from dying, so everyone wins. But when you see this stuff that has no nitrates or no nitrites, you're like, do I want to die? Like, what's happening here? Is it healthy? Is it good? And all of them have, like, celery in them. So I was like, celery juice powder. And you're like, why? And the reason is, is because celery juice is just full of nitrates and nitrites. <laughs> and there's, like, a trick where they're like, no, we didn't put nitrates in We just put celery in there. It's fine. It's totally different. has nothing to do with chemicals. Um, so, yes, uh, when you see celery juice in something, it's all nitrates and nitrites. And you're like, well, why are we scared of this anyway? And usually, I'm like, chemicals are perfect. Chemicals are great. All chemicals are the best thing ever. Uh, no, it's cancer. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's, it's because nitrites cause cancer. Um, and if you go to the World Health Organization, they actually classify them in the same class as tobacco, as causing cancer. They're a category one carcinogen, which everyone freaked out about. And they're like, oh, we're all going to die. It's all going to be terrible. But then you read the fine print and you're like, oh, category one means it for sure causes cancer. Um, wait, wait, there we go. Um, so they are sure that tobacco causes cancer. They are sure that bologna causes cancer, but they don't cause them in the same amount. It's not the same amount of cancer as that you're getting from smoking a pack a day versus eating a pack of bologna a day. Um, bologna gives you less cancer than cigarettes do. Um, so it's fine. Um, and then there's, <laughs> there's category two, which red meat is in. So red meat is like a possible, probable carcinogen, um, whereas they're like bologna, totally, totally bad news. Um, other stuff in category one is asbestos. Does anyone not want to eat processed meat anymore because it's going to give you cancer? Yeah, okay. Uh, also, uh, category one carcinogen. Ethanol, as found in alcohol that you drink. So whenever you drink a beer, it's the same thing as eating bologna. Um, and we're all going to die. I don't know. <laughs> so, yes, processed meats are, in theory, going to give you cancer and make you die, but so is beer. So just have fun forever, and everything will be good. So what we're going to do now is we're going to be done, but you're just going to keep drinking forever until your heart stops. And... <laughs> From one or the other, I'm not sure what it's going to be. Uh, and that is all I have for you tonight. <laughs> the end. Thanks for coming out. We hope to see you again soon. Bye, right, everybody.